0: My name is Samir Kalra. I'm the Managing Director with the Hindu American Foundation. Welcome to the That's So Hindu podcast. We're very thrilled and honored to have on our program today a very special guest, Sarah Stern, the founder and president of the Endowment for Middle East Truth, an unabashedly pro-American and pro-Israel think tank and policy institute in Washington, D.C. Sarah has over four decades of experience working with policymakers on Capitol Hill, as well as members of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Sarah has written for a number of publications, including Newsweek, The New Republic, The Hill, The Jerusalem Post, and many more. She's also appeared on other media outlets such as Fox, NBC News, and I-24 News. She's also the author of two books, Saudi Arabia and the Global Islamic Terrorist Network, and Cherish Illusions. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you on with us today.
1: Thank you. It's a supreme honor and pleasure to be on. Thanks.
0: Great. Uh, so, Sarah, just to get us started, uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with your work at Emmett and what uh, the endowment actually does. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about you know, how you came about and what was the, the motivation um, really for your founding of the organization and kind of the work that you're doing today.
1: Okay, um, way back in 2004, um, I had um, been the director of governmental and legislative affairs for the American Jewish Congress and had been invited into a think tank discussion where um, this was a very respected think tank that's known as a pro Israel um, think tank, kind of a um, that. The head to the lobbying arm of APAC, the brains be behind the body, um, loosely connected to APAC because they have many of the same board of directors as their as their members, um, and they invited four Tanzine Terrace, um, and I was appalled that good Jewish charitable dollars um, could be used to create a platform where they would basically. Um, delegitimatize the state of Israel and its very existence, and these were still in the heady days of Oslo, you know, which began September 13th, 1993, and people were determined to whitewash all sorts of interlocutors or potential interlocutors from the um, the the Palestinian community. Um, and were willing to, unfortunately, um, overlook the kind of serious um, detriment it was doing to the existence of the state of Israel. Um, and I went back um, to my office at the American Jewish Congress. Um, my mother died recently and She left a little bit of money to each of her children. It was exactly $100,000 for each of her children, which was amazing because my father only made $10,000 a year, but she lived like like a church mouse and and saved her money and gave. And I called up my husband and I said to this wonderful man I happened to be married to, buddy, you know, the money mom left us, I would really like to use it. in order to establish a think tank and policy center where we would never demonize the existence of the state of Israel. We would never open ourselves up to a platform which would lead to the delegitimization of the state of Israel. And my husband, who had prior to that thought it would go into our retirement nest egg, Mm -hmm. very generously said, um, your mother was a wonderful American and a wonderful Zionist, and she'd be very, very proud if you used her money that way. So we started that. It's now been 18 years, and thank God we have not gone daily up. Um, We write and publish at least one article a week. Um, We've been in all sorts of publications from um, Newsweek to the New Republic and everything in between. Um, And we um, are on the hill every day in fact, um, Joseph Epstein and Hussein Abu Bakr Mansour of my staff were just on the hill this morning. Um, and we um, try very, very hard to make members of Congress understand um, how Israel is the eastern outpost for Western democratic values. Uh, and for the last several years, we've been focusing mostly on the threat of Iran, 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 and Iran, and its various terror proxies throughout the globe. And that has been a major, major issue. There have been other issues, of course, but um I think that is the existential issue for Israel. And um it is becoming an existential issue throughout the globe as the Iranians are um developing a Deeper and deeper ties with Russia, selling drones to Russia for them to utilize against their brutal war against the Ukrainian people and China. Um, so it's an extraordinarily important issue right now.
0: Well, Sarah, as you were talking, I think I automatically, as an Indian American and Hindu American, started to understand the parallels um, that our community faces, um, you know, vis a vis India and how the depiction of India and, um, you know, Hindu is more specifically is uh, very is very much based on false assumptions and false information. You know, for our audience, um, you know, you mentioned a couple of terms there um, that, you know, again, I saw the parallels in one being Zionism or Zionists, Um, And I automatically thought that there's a parallel term um, amongst Hindus and Indians known as Hindutva which has been weaponized and misunderstood, Hindutva very basically means essence of Hindus or Hinduism, but it's more of a geographic term that, you know, connotates uh, pride and kind of a connection to the uh, cultural, civilizational history and identity in India. And you can be of any religious background really, and be um, considered to be a proponent of Hindutva. Um, So I was just maybe wondering if you could actually just kind of break down a little bit of Zionism um, and talk about what that means and how it has been misrepresented and, and weaponized in the context of demonizing the state of Israel and, um, kind of in a very anti-Semitic manner as well.
1: Exactly. Um, Zionism is actually, believe it or not, a revolutionary movement, um, for 2000 years, the Jewish people had been living in exile and, um, they were subject in, um, throughout Europe, you know, to pogroms, um, uh, uh, persecutions, forced conversions, um, and ultimately the Holocaust. Um, in many of the Muslim and Arab um, lands, they were subjugated to dimming laws. Um, and um, uh, there had been, you know, at least one horrific Iraqi pogrom um, And it was so they had learned to survive um, or not survive um, by assuming second class status. And um, Zionism is actually it could be looked upon as a national liberation movement of the Jewish people when they were um, really um, forced into the worst sorts of deprivation and humiliation possible. Um, And. Unfortunately, it has been turned on its head. You know, once the Jewish people came back to their homeland, um, and particularly after the 1967 war, when, um, they were forced to conquer territories in a defensive war, um, it, um, people had been very uncomfortable with the fact that Jews were no longer assuming their rightful place in history. Um, And uh, Jews were actually um, confronted with the reality that, yes, they have um, they have conquered some land, um, whether it be a defensive war or not. And it was very uncomfortable for certain Jews um, who um, could not um, could not acknowledge that there there are people that unfortunately were living under their control and that they had to figure out a way of dealing with these territories so there was a lot of jewish guilt and shame you know they this was a whole new place for them in history um and unfortunately um in, on september 13th 1993 um There were members of the Labour Party who had convinced Yitzchak Rabin, who went reluctantly um, to um, the White House, Lawn, and had decided, yes, that they would trade land for peace. Now, the Oslo Accords were essentially supposed to be a staged process, not a calendar driven process where trust was going to be earned. Um, And there were certain commitments that were made by the Palestinians. And um, in exchange for that, there would be real tangible land, real estate that were traded. Unfortunately, the trust was never gained. Um, And the most important commitment was that there there was no longer going to be any incitement to hate or to kill Jews and no more terrorism, which, of course, has been violated over and over again. And there are well over a thousand victims of terrorism since the signing of the Oslo Accords. However, this sense of Jewish guilt is something for very. it's very difficult for at least 50 um, percent of American Jews to shake off. Um, Israeli Jews who are living on the front lines really do not believe in the Oslo Accords anymore. There are many, many, many other issues that divide them. But this whole issue of trading land for peace has actually been cast out the window. Um, And um, we now, unfortunately, um, this is not translated across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, And most American universities now look at Zionism as racism, imperialism, colonialism, um, and many American Jews project our experience as liberals um, onto the Palestinians. I remember in the beginning of the Oslo process, one lovely person who works for a lovely member of Congress or worked for a lovely member of Congress had said to me, Sarah, when I look at the Palestinians, I look at the black experience in America and they just want to sit on the front of the bus. And I said, no, so-and-so they want to blow up the bus. And that's precisely what happened. You know, they, they don't believe in a two state solution right now, as you know, and you go on college campuses, they say from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free. And where does that leave the state of Israel? So, um, you know, we feel a huge, huge affinity with Hindu Americans who also have been maligned and misunderstood. And um, unfortunately, we have, you know, I have learned very recently about the attacks on Hindu Americans, which are very, very similar to the attacks that have happened, you know, on American Jews and American synagogues.
0: Uh, Thank you for that, Sarah, and that uh, really in-depth explanation. Uh, You know, kind of what you were talking about there, you know, seems to be there's a lot of this misinformation is emanating from the university space and then kind of from there used in different policy platforms or um, the media, et cetera. But it seems that universities and Middle Eastern studies departments, maybe more specifically, kind of a hotbed for the misinformation about Israel, justification of terrorism, perhaps, um, as well as this kind of demonization of of, uh, Jews more broadly and kind of using, turning the the meaning of Zionism into more of like a slur. Um, And, you know, again, I saw that parallel where Hindutva has become a slur to, you know, mean you're a Hindu nationalist or supremacist, um, et cetera. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about You know the misinformation and the role of universities and these departments more specifically, um, and how that's influenced out in terms of some of the you know policies and other issues that you're dealing with. Sure. Um,
1: In 1978, um, Professor Edward Said, who was a comparative professor of English and literature, um, wrote the book Orientalism, Um, and um, Orientalism was used as a term much as one would use um, um, racism, anti-Semitism, Hindutha. uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, All right. Hindutha, um, sexism. Um, It was essentially a way of looking at literature and history on saying you have much too much of um, a white um, majorityist way of reading history, um, and yeah, there was a lot to be said for this. It was written by somebody who was from that culture, um, but it basically metastasized in such a way so that anybody who had written any sort of history that was not of that ilk um, got cast off of the library shelves Um, and everything became very pro-Arabist. And it it is amazing how things have changed. You know, I'm, I'm pretty ancient. (laughs) Uh, I, (laughs) I went to Columbia university a long time ago, really before the Edward Saidian revolution and things were very, very different then. Um, and now, um, things are all looked through the lens of how, you know, the Western civilization is evil. Anything that Western civilization gives birth to is evil. And they look at, um, Israel as, you know, basically, an outgrowth of Western civilization. Of course, anytime anybody arrives at Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, one realizes that, um, white Ashkenazi Jews are now a minority. Yeah. What well, it is not really a what there are blacks, there are browns, uh, there are Jews of every color, but all of a sudden we have become, um, white privilege. Which to me is really interesting because um, in the 1930s and 40s, when Jews were clamoring to get out of Europe, the State Department actually had a a, a horrific quota on Jews coming in here. And it was nearly impossible. Um, And Franklin Delano Roosevelt and others from his State Department um, really condemned Jews to die in the gas chambers. And turned away a, a, a boat called the St. Louis and that they were destined to go back to Germany uh, to the concentration camps. So we, you know, unfortunately, I can tell you a, a, a quick little story about my father who, thank God, came here before the Holocaust and went to City College as a little boy. Um, And in those days, many people were socialists. So he became a member of the Young Socialist Club for about a minute when he learned that the Jews controlled the railroads and the newspapers and the banks in Hollywood. And he said, "I'm not a socialist." So he goes to the Young Republicans Club and he finds out that the Jews are a bunch of dirty commies and socialists. He said, "I'm not a uh, I'm not a Republican." He said, "I'm not a Republican and I'm not a socialist. I'm a Jew. you know, and that there's something absolutely um indelible about anti-Semitism. You know, before the birth of the state of Israel, we were condemned for going like sheep to the slaughter and being too passive. And now we're condemned by being too materialistic and nationalistic because we want a right to exist. And it has absolutely crossed the line um, from anti-Zionism to anti-Semitism. And we see this a great deal on college campuses where Young Jews are denied the possibility of getting into certain clubs and Sunni New two Jewish females, were sexually assaulted. So they started a sexual assault awareness club. And then when they found out that these two Jewish students were Jews and they weren't even Zionists, they didn't believe in Israel's right to exist. They were kicked out of the very club that they formed so, somehow, having any kind of association um with Judaism, you know denies you entering especially into liberal clubs. Um and that's very sad because for most American Jews, they would identify themselves as being liberal. You know we we joined the marches for um uh, the rights for blacks to get votes. There were two. Um, Jews who were killed in Mississippi, um, trying to sign up um, blacks to vote. It's just, you know, this is very, being liberal and compassionate is very much a part of our DNA. Yet it's been turned on its head where we're not allowed into this club anymore. It's it's very interesting.
0: Yeah. I think squeezed between both ends. um, And it seems like there's a has been an ongoing attempt to kind of whitewash, as you say, um, history or to delegitimize the history and experience that uh, uh, Jewish Americans have here in America. But even prior to that, um, you know, how do you confront, like, you know, when this comes to the policy circles and and maybe this translates in different ways, whether it's how they depict Israel as a state, and then, you know, the Palestinian side, and maybe now even vis-a-vis Iran, I'm sure that a lot of these misrepresentations, this misinformation seeps into it there. How do you confront that? How do you address that um, when you're on the Hill or when you're having discussions um, in different policy circles?
1: Many, many people on Capitol Hill right now, I have to say they respect the state of Israel because Israel has never expected any, any other nation to shed one drop of blood for its existence. And I think there is right now a growing awareness, finally, of Iran and its malevolent intentions, especially now since they have been selling drones to Russia and there is a a deep-seated empathy with what the people in Ukraine have to go through. Um, And they know that Israel is pretty much going to be left on its own to have to deal with Iran you know, and Iran has this vast network of 19 terrorist organizations in the West Bank. Um, and, you know, Hezbollah is on Israel's northern border with 150,000 weapons staring down at Israel. Um, they have been, as of this week, you know, doing um, um, very um, provocative things. Uh, Hezbollah, they um, basically have been removing The stones in the blue line um, that was erected in 2000 after Israel withdrew all of their forces in Lebanon south of the blue line. Um, And they have um, they set up two camps, um, uh, two tents in the Golan Heights. One, Israel was able to forcibly take down the other one. They haven't. And they've gone to the United Nations about it. Nothing has been done. Um, They've also sent drones over is really airspace in the Golan Heights. So I think that right now um, the Iranians understand that the Israelis, um, first of all, as a people, are very divided about this issue of judicial reform, um, which is a very complicated issue, and I can make arguments on both sides. To be honest about it, um, but beyond that. Um, they see that America is in a period of decline um, and they see that Russia, China and Iran are basically becoming very, very powerful um, after our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we want to lick our wounds. It was very obvious from the beginning of the Biden administration that he was sick of these. I think he he actually said he's sick of these long wars. <laughs> In the Middle East, and he wants to um, head eastwards towards China. Um, I don't even think that you know we will ever confront China. I think at least not for quite a while, um, and we're retreating inward. Um, so you know, as Osama bin Laden once said, "If I see a a choice between a strong horse and a weak horse, I'll definitely back the strong course. And America is no longer the strong course. So it's not only Hezbollah, but Iran, who has been doing a lot of provocative, provocative things, you know, telling um, many of our um, our oil tankers, you know, in in the Persian Gulf, um, you know, making very provocative statements and. Um, Violating the JCPOA, which said you can only enrich uranium to 3.67 percent. And now um, the new threshold, according to the Biden unwritten guidelines, we take it are, is 60 percent, which is a long way from 3.67 percent. And they um, have we have or the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Administration, have found um, um, traces of uranium Enriched to 83.7%, which is perilously close to the 90% which one would need for a nuclear bomb. Um, So, you know, we don't know whether or not Iran has actually crossed the threshold. Nobody really knows into a nuclear bomb, but we know that all of its efforts are there and all of its money that has been released and recently. Billions of dollars have been released from frozen assets in Iraq. Um, the um, Iranians were owed the Iraqis through unpaid electric bills. And we had um, assets in Iraq that we have released to them and through South Korea. And that money is only going for their military proxies, their vast web of military and the IRGC and not to the people. And um so we're seeing it's becoming a more dangerous world. And I think Israel across the board, and we saw that with President Isaac Herzog's speech to Congress this week and the really warm reception he got, he was interrupted 28 times by applause. Um, so I think they're respected for actually having the guts to go it alone um, and, and not to expect anybody else to shed one ounce of blood, um, for their protection.
0: So do you consider some of the noise by groups that are criticizing Israel, um, as just that noise, or do they have an influence or an impact? I know there was one letter that was sent by a few members of Congress, um, um, again, criticizing Israel in the wake of, um, president Herzog's trip, Um, And there's obviously a number of different groups that, you know, either through lobbying or media or otherwise, um, you know, continue to try to demonize Israel, criticize Israel. How is that viewed? Is that something that is perhaps just kind of now marginalized, given the larger geopolitical threats that we're seeing with Iran, Russia, China, et cetera? Or does it still have an influence on some policymakers that needs to be confronted?
1: Yeah, that's um, an excellent question. All of your questions, by the way, Samira, have been really excellent. Um, yeah, this letter by uh, our statement by um, Pamela Japayel that Israel is a racist um, apartheid nation um, is very disturbing. And there were nine people that signed that letter um, or, or uh, who signed on to that statement. And there were five Uh, members of the progressive wing of the Democratic caucus that refused to listen to President Isaac Herzog's speech. Um, I don't think it is just noise. I think it has to be taken very seriously. And I think it reflects a growing segment of the Democratic Party. Um, And it is very frightening because this kind of message um, has been repeated over and over again in college campuses, and more and more young people, particularly young Jews, um, have um, become disenfranchised with the whole Zionist idea. And they don't they're ashamed to call themselves a Zionists. Natan Sharansky, about twenty years ago, wrote a wonderful article for commentary where he said the new Jews of silence are the American Jewish community on college campuses who put their heads down. So they don't just represent themselves. They represent certain quarters of the Jewish community. um, And it is very, very scary. Um, What sort of voice they will have ultimately, you know, as these people mature, I'm not sure, but... um, you know, I, I, it's usually when it's like five minutes to midnight and Israel's about to fight a war when all of these Jews suddenly wake up and they realize, Hey, they're attacking us, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you vote for merits, the extreme left-wing party or Likud. you're still, you know, a Jew and they're still going to, you know, attack the homeland. But, um, It's a it's a growing trend. And, you know, we are very, very um, concerned about this.
0: And probably not coincidentally, um, Representative Jaipal was also the lead on a congressional letter criticizing India and Prime Minister Modi when he came to the U.S. um, just a few weeks earlier and uh, also had a joint address to Congress, um, which was very well received. I mean, the trip in general was uh, a huge success. Um, But of course you had that, you know, uh, that criticism, that noise, and which was not based on facts. It was based on a lot of misinformation. Again, it was based on a a lack of understanding of ground realities in India. Um, And I think we see a lot of similarities in terms of the tactics and strategy used by those attacking Israel and the Jewish community now being juxtaposed or kind of you know, perhaps copy pasted towards, um, India and, uh, and Hindus. So, uh, you know, I see it was, you mentioned, um, Pramila Jepal there, and she was also the lead on the letter, uh, congressional letter, um, against Modi, um, when he was here, you know, and that kind of maybe, um, you know, brings me to my next question. Who are the groups that are, you know, responsible for a lot of the anti-Israel activism, the BDS movements, um, and kind of the the demonization of um you know Israel, but probably the Jewish people as well.
1: Well, there are, of course, um certain um Islamist groups, um care, which was you know, the Council for American Islamic Relations was actually once very, very heavily identified with Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um I, in 2001, I think the first indictment came in because of the Holy Land Foundation trial, um, where they realized that CARA had been really funding money to Hamas. Um, ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, also um, has been a, a lot and it has a long history. You know, there is a Zakat uh Um, a a certain mandatory amount of money, 10 percent of one's um, income that one should give to charity, which we have in Judaism as well. Um, But we usually do not use them for terrorist organizations. I I hope not. We don't use them for terrorist organizations. Uh, So um, they actually had been indicted Um, In the Holy Land Foundation trial, a number of people had ended up going to prison. Um, Now they have taken on a rather benign form um, as though they are a um, Islamic anti-defamation league. um, And CARE is very involved in things like making sure that our students in public schools aren't um, exposed to textbooks that don't have family values and things like that. And it's, it's so interesting how they, um, and it, they've kind of metamorphosized. It doesn't mean that there is not still a Zakat and that the, um, the money still does not find its way into, um, Islamist uh, terrorists or Islamic terrorist organizations. But, um, they're very, very, very slick. Um, and the way they present themselves. And unfortunately, a, a great number uh, of members of Congress fall for them um, and have been seen at their fundraisers. I really don't want to name their names, um, but if you look at the um, CAIR, C-A-I-R. Care.org, you could see during their benefits that they they actually have honored a great deal of members of Congress, and they have figured out a way, um, patterning themselves after AIPAC to become very, very successful. And then on the other side, we have um, Jewish organizations who um, don't understand, I think, how they're helping these organizations, Um, Jewish organizations who are imbued with self-guilt and um, who don't understand, you know, what it is like to live in sterot and have to be subjected to having less than one minute to go into a sealed room under rocket fire or, or what it's like to Go out for a cup of coffee or ride on the light rail in Jerusalem and all of a sudden realize that, you know, there's somebody with a knife that wants to attack you. So I think these people are um, misguided um, and need to be educated, um, you know, need to spend more time in Israel and understand what it's like and, um, you know, actually to be there on the ground, to live on the ground and understand you know, it's, 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 it's very sad that the education of so many Jews, so many American Jews are really lacking and there are Jewish, the Jewish groups are like, if not now, when, um, J street rabbis for peace in the middle East, um, there's a whole plethora of them. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's the reality.
0: I think for our listeners, care and Isna are definitely familiar names, um, For the last five years or so we i think we've seen some of these same groups attacking india attacking hindu issues here in the us um this impending genocide that's happening in india against muslims when you know the pew research foundation has found that the overwhelming majority of muslims are very free and self-reportedly free to uh, practice their religion in india course, every country has its problems and challenges, and those should be addressed. But this narrative that groups like CARA built around India are very similar, um, I think, to what you're facing. And, um, and we also see that, you know, here that they insert themselves into a lot of different issues to get that mainstream credibility. Um, but a lot of their activism is directed against, you know, India and Israel and, and Jews and Hindus, unfortunately. But I think it's, they've... Effectively, um, you know, convinced you know many that they are a legitimate, kind of credible organization. These groups have convinced um, you know our young students as well on college campuses about um, you know uh, brainwash these these students in terms of you know mis- misinformation about India, about the realities there, about Hinduism and Hindus more broadly. So they have kind of developed a self hatred or a sense of Um, You know, being on the other side of many of the issues that we're facing, unfortunately. Um, You know, one thing I wanted to shift to, though, is, you know, we're talking about India, we're talking about Israel, we're talking about the U.S. They have these countries have many challenges of a similar nature, but there's also a lot of opportunity for cooperation. and We've seen relationships growing in many fields. How do you see um you know the u s Indian israel relationship uh, going forward, and how can that be you know perhaps a um, a positive force um in the world when we do see many you know relationships like China and Russia and Iran being one that are more destructive in nature
1: right i, I obviously the United states israel um, and India share so many common values, and um India has the largest population in the world. It surpassed China now. Um, And it is a force to reckon with. And I I see military and defensive cooperation, you know, absolutely flourishing um, between Israel and um, India. Um, And I would love to see, you know, the United States, Israel and India develop some sort of defense pact together. Um I'm very glad to see that Israel is now part of Sencom, and they did have Operation Juniper Oak um, this year, which was the largest military exercise within um, Israel's borders together with the U.S. military. It would be wonderful if India could participate in something like that, um, I think, and industrially, um, India and um, Israel, I think, you know, can exchange um, products and goods and services. And, you know, I, I'd love to see the kind of beautiful um, relationship flourish and there be more tourism together. Um, but it, uh, it's obvious that um, uh, President Modi has, you know, good relations with Israel, um, irrespective of who the prime minister is, I'm sure it'll these relations will endure. Um, and I think the the future is very, very um, rosy in terms of um the kind of Israeli Indian relations for many, many years to come.
0: No, absolutely. And I think people in India and here as well, Indian Americans, I think, feel very similarly. And I, we see that in terms of the growing um, connections and collaboration between organizations domestically, as well as um, globally, and a lot more people to people contact collaboration on technology products, um, and and initiatives. And of course, as you mentioned, the military and defense side of things. Um So i think that's definitely a positive going forward and kind of as we wrap up today um you know you you know mentioned a lot about where we are um in terms of us israel relations um, under the biden administration we're coming into 2024 soon um you know this year has kind of flown by Uh, we're going to be in another election cycle very soon Do you see a consistency in terms of uh, U.S.-Israel relations going forward, regardless of the administration that comes into power in 2024? Um, Do you see any changes? Kind of maybe if you can take out your crystal ball um, and kind of predict where you see things going in the next uh, few years.
1: Yeah, Um, I think that there is kind of a bedrock, deep, a um, relationship between the United States and Israel. And I think that um, things will go forward, you know, pretty positively. I'm I can't say I'm not worried about the growing influence of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, And we can never rest on our laurels. Uh, One thing about being Jewish is we've learned from our history never to be too comfortable. Mm. And and, But by and large, um, I think Israel is here to stay and they might have to fight some really horrific bloody wars, but they will never, ever um, go back um, to being um, dispersed um, and um, to give up their national sovereignty again. And I think most most Americans do appreciate that and their will to fight and to go it alone. Um, so I think Israel's here and I, I think by and large, as we can tell by the very warm welcome that Isaac Herzog just got this week in the US Congress, that um the um the temperature of the Israel US relationship is a very warm and affectionate one. So I'm not that worried, and I would hope that um, we can help bring India into that warm embrace as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, with that, I want to wrap up our conversation. There's so many more things that I want to find out about, but I think we can leave that to hopefully a podcast in the future where we can have you back on. Um, But Sarah, I want to thank you again so much for your time today and would encourage all of our listeners to definitely follow the Endowment for Middle East Truth um, on social media. And we'll put all those links into the description of the podcast um, and through their website. They have a wonderful website and a lot of great um, publications that they produce and um, information. So definitely follow them, you know, stay engaged and uh, continue to learn more about these issues that I think affect all of our communities as Americans first, and then as uh, Jewish and Hindu Americans. So thank you again, Sarah, for your time. Really appreciate that, it appreciated the conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Samira. It was an absolute pleasure. Be well. You well.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of that's so hindu if you enjoyed it please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review it's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners you can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to haf at hinduamerican.org donate thanks again for listening this episode of that's so hindu if you enjoyed it please take a minute and leave us a nice five star review it's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners you can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to haf at hinduamerican.org donate
1: thanks again for listening